The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. It's good to see you guys this morning. Good morning, good morning. Um, so yeah, like Justin said, my name is Jonathan, uh, Jonathan Morgan. I am from the D.C. area, um, and yeah, believe it or not, I've known Justin for 10 years, so for anybody who knows Justin knows that I'm an enduring person, an impatient person. Um, no, uh, yeah, Justin's been one of my best friends for 10 years, um, and I'm very thankful for his, his life, uh, what the Lord has done particularly in his life, uh, and, for, and then just for the fact that he's here. He's here with you laboring uh, here in Myrtle Beach. Um, I, I find it interesting, uh, as I was studying these passages, and uh, as we look at the New Testament, you see Paul's letters, uh, the love and the, the, the um, passion that he has for saints in other places. Uh, and to talk to Justin periodically and hear about what's going on here, it makes me feel like Paul. You know, like, man, I could see how Paul really just, he wasn't able to be with them physically all the time, uh, but he had a love and a joy uh, for the work that the Lord was doing in the lives of saints in other places. So I'm thankful for you all. Um, for me, this is a little bit of a homecoming of sorts. Uh, I became a Christian 10 years ago uh, and started my walk with the Lord here in Myrtle Beach. As a freshman, as an 18-year-old at Coastal Carolina, University. Um, I had no idea that the Lord was going to do a work in my life. When I came down here, those were my intentions, uh, and the Lord just changed everything. Uh, he really flipped everything uh, on his head, and I'll talk about that more in my sermon. Um, another thing, thank you for, from the CO folks, from the campus outreach folks. You'll see a bunch of students here in a little bit, in about a week, next Sunday. Um, last summer, when we left, there was a lot of buzz from, amongst the students of how much they enjoyed your church. Uh, so thank you so much for being so hospitable uh, to them and just showing them the body of Christ in a place other than home. Uh, so I definitely thank you for that um, from them to you. Um, I will say this. The saints from Washington, D.C. bring you greetings. Right? I wanted to say that. It makes me feel like Paul a little bit, right? Um, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll get into it. All right? uh, Father, we give you thanks uh, for your goodness and your kindness and your mercy and your grace exhibited to us through your son, Jesus. Um, you didn't have to, but you did. Uh, Father, you are a good God, and we pray even now that you would make much of yourself, that we would decrease and that you would increase, uh, and that your saints would gather together to remember uh, both to not be deceived, Father, uh, and to remember that you have washed us, you have cleansed us, you have sanctified us, and you are continuing, continuing to do so. So, Father, would you help us now as we uh, seek to know you more and to make you known. In your son's name we pray, amen. Know your enemy. Know your enemy. The first and best way to conquer your enemy is to know your enemy. To take your enemy lightly, or as the younger generation says, to sleep on your enemy is probably the first mistake in getting defeated by your enemy if you're not careful. Right, so to know your enemy is very crucial. It could be very costly if you take your enemy lightly. Uh, my fiance and I were on this, this show that apparently is kind of old, but it's called Person of Interest. You may have heard of it. Uh, really good show. And one thing that happens every single episode, it's a crime-fighting show, is the, is the good guys do surveillance right, to get a, get a hold of their enemy, to know what their enemy does, where they go, um, what they're like. So it's important that us... You know, we're not crime fighters. As Christians, we should know our enemy. So in today's verse, we see an exhortation in the form of a warning from Paul to the Corinthian church. It's a very specific warning, 
right? He, he doesn't beat around the bush here. He, he hits it exactly on the head. He says, do not be deceived. And then not only that, but he gives specific details as to what he means by do not be deceived. And these specific details, the specific warning that Paul gives was really a testimony to how well he knew this church. It was roughly four years before that Paul himself had planted this church. And so he knew these people. He knew the ins and outs. He knew the things that they could potentially struggle with. And he had even heard while he was away the things that they were actually struggling with. So for some quick context before we really get into it, um, a couple things about the the Corinthian church and what was going on beforehand. Um, Paul starts in the beginning of 1 Corinthians with a greeting, right? He says, hello, you know, the same way that you would introduce yourself if you met somebody for the first time or saw somebody for the first time. And then right from that, he moves on to a thanksgiving. He thanks God for them and what the Lord was doing in their lives. And then very, very quickly, he turns his, uh, his tone, if you will, right? He moves straight to an appeal, specifically an appeal for unity, right? I think if, if you wanted to, uh, if somebody were to ask you, hey, what's 1 Corinthians all about? You could say unity. That would pretty much summarize it up. Unity specifically within the local church. So Paul appeals to them literally for 16 chapters to be united, be united. Do not let division and, and deception and lies and all kinds of things uh, make you guys uh, fall apart. Be united. So we see a whole array of things that are happening in this Corinthian church. They're falling apart, if we're honest. Uh, they're falling apart. Some, some horrible things are happening. Um, we see everything from the sexually immoral, which we'll talk about today. We see people who, who don't know who to follow. Some are following Paul. Some are following Apollo. Some are following Christ. Uh, we see uh, lawsuits right before we, the text that we're looking at today. Christians suing Christians and taking their matters before an unbelieving court. So things are falling apart, basically, for the Corinthians and and Paul, right at the end of that lawsuit passage in, in the beginning, the first uh, eight verses of chapter six, he lands with this exhortation, this, um, this warning to them to not be deceived. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter six, verses nine through 11. And as we look at this text, I want you guys to think about yourselves for a second. Reflect on how gracious and how merciful God has been to us to sinful people, to sinful wretches like us. There's three things I want you guys to take away from this, and I'm going to go ahead and tell you guys what my points are today, and then as we work through them, hopefully you can see them pretty clearly. I think they're pretty clear. Point number one, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Point number two, you and I were the unrighteous. You and I were the unrighteous. And point number three, Christ is the means of our righteousness. Christ is the means of our righteousness. So let's start reading in verse 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. So point number one, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. One thing I love about Paul's tone, this entire book, is that it's really obvious that he is not afraid of what the Corinthians think about him, right? As he rebukes them, as he says hard things to them, he does so because he knows, one, they need it, and secondly, because he loves them. He's not worried to say the hard things to them. And we see that pretty clearly in in these uh, set of verses. 
one thing that I see a lot of Christians, and even myself, I'll be the first to admit it, we struggle with this idea of fear of man, right? Fearing what others may think of you. I see, we see a really good example from Paul here that he does not fear man. He does not fear what they may think of him. Uh, we see him asking these rhetorical questions like we see right there in verse 9 all over the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, specifically this one, I imagine Paul's tone being something like, didn't you guys know? Like, I, I told you this before. I told you when I was physically with you. Others have come and told you this message. This is not new to you, right? The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul clearly has spoken to these people before. This is a great example of that tough love on display. Right? He's saying the hard things and willing to say the hard things because he loves them. So again, verse 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So there's an active and loaded verb in this first, the very, very beginning of this verse, in this first sentence, this idea of inherit. I think that's the great place to start this idea of inherit. So to truly understand what Paul means and what he's alluding to with this idea of inherit, it's really the difference between kind of glancing over these verses or really being changed by these verses, this idea of, of inherit. Um, as a matter of fact, we see this refrain repeated again, this idea of inheriting, again, at the end of verse 10. And anytime anything's repeated in scripture, right, this is Bible reading 101. Hopefully you'll learn this uh, next week when you start your core classes. I'm sure you guys already know. Uh, but when Paul repeats himself, right, we need to pay attention, right? Paul didn't work with emojis like we do today. So therefore, we have to, he, he repeats himself to get his point across when he's trying to be serious about something. And we see that refrain, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, repeated twice. So then this idea of inheriting, the very nature of the word has family connotations, uh, one definition, to receive from someone when the person dies. To receive from someone when the person dies or to have, uh, to have because of the genes given by your parents, right? This idea of inheritance, very familial. Uh, you can be given things from anybody, right? Anybody can give you a gift, but to inherit implies that there are family ties, right, between these two people. Uh, so, for example, my mom, she, my, my mom's from South Carolina, so there's has some family ties down here, and she owns some land in a town called McCormick, South Carolina. And my brother and, her, my brother and myself are in her will. And so one day when she passes on, Lord willing, we will inherit that, that land from my mom. So a quick example. Now, Paul's starting to scratch the surface on this idea that when we come to know Jesus as Lord, we are adopted, right? We are brought in to this family. We get what he has. We inherit what he has bought for us. We're outsiders bring, being brought into his family. We see the same idea in Romans 8. Romans 8, the greatest, the greatest chapter in the Bible Romans 8, uh, verses 16 and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The very nature of our inheritance is to be given simply because you're in the family. Right? You are given something because you're in the family. In this case, we're given the kingdom of God because we're in the family. How amazing is that? The kingdom of God is yours because you're in the family, because he adopted you. Therefore, when we inherit the kingdom of God, we do it humbly, right? We do it knowing that there was nothing on our, on our behalf. So if we know anything about adoption, right, the, the parents, they go, they, they figure out the child and, and get to know the child, and they just bring them in. The child has done nothing to, to belong or deserve the family. They, they were just born. I think the same thing goes when it comes to children of God inheriting the kingdom of God. We do this humbly knowing that we have not earned it, nor, do we achieve, nor have we achieved it. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, the thing that's different about this inheritance, though, 
is instead of us receiving it due to some sort of death, right? The way that traditional kind of worldly or earthly inheritance are received, we receive it due to a life. We receive this inheritance due to a life. Yes, Christ died, but he has guaranteed us an inheritance by his resurrection. Because he got up from the grave, you can take it to the bank, right? This will be ours. The kingdom of God will be ours. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. And, also, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in, in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Church, this is the joy of our salvation, that Christ has sealed, he has guaranteed our inheritance, and nothing, nothing can take that away. What God has sealed, nothing can take away. But this idea of inheritance, it's only part of the picture that we see here. It's the object to be inherited that our focus needs to be on, right? This is where our desire will either grow or it'll fade away, right? It's it's one thing to inherit a box of crayons, It's another whole thing to inherit an estate, a million-dollar estate, right? What the object is of your inheritance is going to be where your your affections either grow or they fade away. In this case, we have more than just money or property. We have our eternity hanging in the balance. The kingdom of God is what it is to be inherited here, right? That's the object that we're looking at, the kingdom of God. So for these Corinthians to feel what Paul meant for them to feel when he wrote this letter to them, they needed to understand or have a, some sort of fundamental understanding of what the kingdom of God is. So the Corinthians knew the kingdom of God to be, as Jesus said in Mark 1, the place where only those who repent and believe will actually dwell with God forever. Um, they knew it to be the place where those who were washed, sanctified, and justified, where they would dwell with God forever. You see, it was just a few short years before that Paul had been sharing this truth with them, this gospel truth with them, and had done so multiple times since. One commentator, he describes the kingdom of God as this, God's active and righteous rule overturning Satan's evil domination in the world. It became a reality when Jesus died for sins and was raised bodily on the third day. Docs the church, we see glimpses of this every single time a dead soul comes to life. Every single time somebody comes to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, you're seeing glimpses of the kingdom of God. And so praise God when this does happen. This is a foretaste of the kingdom to come. And even here, in a little bit, when we take the Lord's Supper, we remember what he has done for us, and we continue to look forward and proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And when he comes, what's coming with him? The kingdom. We also know that from God's word, one day this kingdom will be visible. It will be visible to the eye when Christ comes back and completely redeems those whom he has called. We look forward to this day. We yearn for it. We hope in it. We put our joy in it. We put our satisfaction in it. This is why you get up Sunday after Sunday to come worship here because the kingdom is coming. You are banking your life on it. You are changing your life for it. In my introduction, I mentioned the word enemy. Uh, For the Christian, our greatest enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. All three of these enemies have the same, same exact tactic, I'd argue. Their go-to tactic is this idea of deception, right? So that's why Paul quickly moves to do not be deceived. It's their number one tactic, the enemy's number one tactic. Do not be deceived. Paul wasn't about to let them go on thinking, oh, I'm good, I'm righteous, when they really weren't, right? He would not let them be deceived. He would not let them persist in their sin. So Paul doesn't beat around the bush. He's he's straight up with them right there in verse 9. Do not be deceived. He's pointing out the enemy to them. Look, right there, there he is. 
don't be deceived. So in other words, Paul's saying, don't get tricked. All right? Don't take the enemy lightly. Open your eyes. Pay attention. But pay attention to what? Why, why, why should Paul have to say this? Wasn't he right there with them before? Aren't they Christians? Wasn't that the one church that Paul had began his ministry with and began planting? And They should know all this, right? Isn't that the case? Well, I've heard it said that Christians are like leaky buckets. We're like leaky buckets. Every time you try to fill a leaky bucket, what happens? Well, the water or whatever you're putting inside of it, slowly but surely drains out of it, right? We're like leaky buckets. And friends, when it comes to these leaky buckets, we, we need the, the truth of God's word to plug our holes, right? Constantly, over and over again, Sunday after Sunday. Well, Jonathan, how can you call me a leaky bucket? What do you mean, right? Well, one reason why I can say that we're leaky buckets is that we're all sinners, right? We're constantly hearing the truth of God's word on Sunday and falling into sin on Monday, right? Again, we need God's word. We need God's truth to plug those holes. The truths of God's word clearly don't always stick because we see that through our constant falling back into sin. One way I know this to be true, the sin of worry, for example, the sin of worry. Philippians 4, very, very clear, right? Do not be anxious about anything, but instead pray. Matthew 6, 25, Jesus himself, hey, the birds, I feed them. They don't have to work. I feed them, but, not, but nonetheless, they don't have to work nor worry. You shouldn't either, right? I, I care more for you, Jesus says. Yet if I were to somehow take a poll today, my guess is across the board, 100%, we'd all at some point fall into the sin of worry or anxiousness, right? Again, we are leaky buckets. And worry is just one of many sins. So yes, we are leaky buckets, and the Lord has prescribed in his word a couple solutions, a couple ways in which we can plug these holes until he comes back to plug these holes himself. His church, I mentioned that before, we gather together to remind each other of how good he is, prayer, and his word. I'd argue that these are the three ways in which Christ has, God himself has given us to plug these holes to sustain us until he himself comes back. Uh, my pastor back in D.C., he calls the church an assurance of salvation cooperative. An assurance of salvation cooperative. Together, through God's word, we gather Sunday after Sunday, then we go out into the week and in some senses get beat up by the world and then we come back to get renewed together and remind each other of what God has done for us to assure each other of our salvation. Again, an assurance of salvation cooperative. So yes, Paul had said to them all these things before. This was not new information. This was not new knowledge. They were familiar with this message, yet they, need to be, they needed to be reminded to not be deceived. And we do too, right? To be regularly reminded to not be deceived. Paul continues on in the rest of verse 9 and into, de- and into 10, demonstrating for us how we can actually love each other well. Paul loved the Corinthians so much so like I said earlier, that he would not beat around the bush. He called their sin out directly. Christians, as much as it may hurt at times, to call each other out on our sin is actually a very loving thing to do. I know I've been, Justin's been a person who's called me on my sin in the past. It does not feel good to be exposed in that way, but it is actually a very loving thing every single time that we do that for each other. So do you realize that? Do you know that to be true in your own life? Do you have others in your life doing that for you, calling you on your sin? Does anybody know you well enough to call you on your sin? If not, I would argue, get to know folks, right, in this church, in this body of believers. Expose yourself. Allow them to know you on on an intimate level so that whenever trials do come, we can be like Paul, right, and and warn them, hey, don't be deceived. These things will not, these people will not inherit the kingdom of God, the unrighteous. So it is a loving thing for our brothers and sisters to call each other on our sin, to hold each other accountable. So Paul wanted to see their sin for what it was and to not be deceived. 
He wouldn't allow them to go on living this way and to assume that they were righteous when they really weren't. Paul wanted nothing more than for those Corinthians to stand before God with him one day uh, in, in, in heaven, righteous. He wanted nothing more, to that, more than that. Do you want the same for those around you? If so, I think Paul has a great prescription for us, right? Hold each other accountable. So let's look at this list that Paul explicitly puts together with the Corinthians in mind. Paul begins with four words that I think are actually very, very much related. He says, the sexually immoral, the nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. The interesting thing about these four sins that Paul calls out here uh, is that they really could kind of be all summarized in that very first word, sexually immoral. Well, then why does Paul kind of keep going with the specifics? Why does he kind of pour it on even more than, than he's had to? I think it's because Paul knows that this specific kind of sin has affected generations of men and women before him, and he probably has some sort of idea of how many people it will affect after him. This is, nothing, this is not new or uncommon to man. Right? This has been the demise of many, and Paul knew that. So he was very much going to make sure that he pointed it out. Think for a second, for your own, in your own lives. How many people have you heard via social media or the news, or maybe even personally in your own lives, or indirectly or directly, have heard, that you've heard, have fallen to the sin of, of, sexual, of sexual sin, sexual immorality? Just think for a second. My guess is that most of us will have names or people in mind. It's a sin that has reached so many, so many. I mean, look at it. David, right? Old Testament. A man after God's own heart. This is how I know God is gracious because what we know of David and his life and what he's done, and then, then we have the title that we still, thousands of years later, call him a man after God's own. You know God is gracious if he's done that with David, right? He himself had fallen into this exact same sin. God loves us by warning us. God loves us by warning us. But Paul doesn't end here. Paul doesn't end here. He goes on to highlight the thieves, the greedy, the drunkards, the revilers, the swindlers. All of these will not inherit the kingdom of God. We could definitely take the time to look at each one of these, but I think, you know, it'll extend this a little bit further. So um, the way I think that Paul has already done for us, he, he's kind of summarized it for us right there in verse 9. All these different things, all these different words, these descriptors, these are the unrighteous, and they will not inherit the kingdom of God. So therefore, to gain this kingdom, to receive this kingdom, the implication here is that righteousness is required. Righteousness is required. It's a prerequisite, if you will. So I have a younger brother. He's six years younger than I am. He just got into law school. There were prerequisites for him to get into law school. He had to have a certain GPA. He had to get referrals. He had to do internships. There were a lot of things that he had to do before he was able to uh, be looked at as a candidate for law school. There are prerequisites. God's kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness, which means the unrighteous have no part in it. I'll say that again. God's kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness, which means the unrighteous have no part in it. Paul is so clear on this, right? He's, he's not beating around the bush, and he needed to be, right, with the people who were constantly being led astray by false teachers of any kinds. If you know anything about the backgrounds of the Corinthians, I mean, if you were flashy and you could say a few awesome words, it was, they're all following you, right? Paul had come, he had done his thing, he had shared the gospel, the church was planted, he left and it felt, it was almost as if he was never there, right? These people were following all kinds of false teachers uh, and those with money, all kinds of false gods, they were being deceived. So therefore, Paul needed to be clear. Well, if the unrighteous are those, are the ones who will not inherit the kingdom of God, then it would help us to know who exactly are the unrighteous. The unrighteous are those who persist in their sin. 
right? So Paul has this list. And if we're honest, we've all fallen and probably continue to fall in some way, shape, or form and can identify with this list. But what I'm going to delineate here is that the unrighteous are those who persist in their sin, right? The unrighteous are those who show no signs of repentance or faith towards God, right? So if there's a fellow brother or sister who's struggling, I wouldn't be quick to call, no, you're not going to heaven, or you're not, you know, you're, you're doomed, you're damned. I, I wouldn't run to that. I'd watch, observe, pray, definitely counsel, definitely warn them the way Paul's warning them, but are they persisting in their sin or are they actually showing signs of repentance and faith, right? So the unrighteous are those who do not show signs of repentance and faith. So if you are a Christian here today, then one of the most common postures, along with praying and waiting, that we will take in this life, so from beginning to end, is one of fighting against sin daily. We will fight against sin daily. A regular turning away from sin and confessing it to others so that you don't fall back into it. Right? Turn away, confess so that you don't fall back into it. Luke 9, 23, take up your cross daily and follow him. Right? That's in some sense, is the battle cry for the Christian. For the person who doesn't fight sin, it's just a matter of time before you identify more with the unrighteous than you do with the righteous. So my application for you here is to get some close friends, like I mentioned earlier, and, and get to know them. Yes, those who are in this church in particular, right? I've, I've seen folks who, oh, I have some close friends. They live in Arkansas. So they don't know you, right? Here, right here, amongst these people who live in the same environment as you, get close friends, get close people who can know you well, and you can know them well, and you can carry out this commission by Paul together. If you haven't been tracking with me yet, what it is that makes the unrighteous unrighteous, it's, it's sin, right? It's sin. Sin by nature is deceitful. Thus, Paul's warning, don't be deceived. Think about it. Sin fundamentally lies about who God is. It makes much of sinful human beings, and it diminishes God. Right? It puts us on the throne, and it puts God under the throne. Sin is insane at its very nature. It overpromises and it underdelivers literally every single time. You know, I haven't lived a long time, but I can, it's very easy to see that sin never pays off in the long run. It may seem satisfying in that moment, but in the long run, it doesn't. It never does. I mean, let's look at the Bible. Think about Genesis 2 and 3, right? God had literally just created the world, created Adam, let Adam kind of mingle amongst the animals, right? Things were perfect. Things were good. He even went so far as to create a helper for Adam, right? Adam's greatest gift, his wife, Eve. Things were perfect. Everything that Adam could possibly want was right there with him. He was fully satisfied. God himself was dwelling with man. He just commanded one thing of Adam, Genesis 2.16. We see that one thing he asked. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That was it. This loving God had given him everything. But the moment Satan comes in to tempt, we see that insane nature of sin. God was doing nothing but good things for Adam in that moment. And he traded in the truths of God for the lie of Satan. And we continue to do that very same thing today, thousands of years later. Uh, one Christian rapper, he puts it this way, sin is bigger than bad habits, right? It's way bigger than bad habits. It's a matter of man seeking for God's spot, following the same pattern as Adam. Right? That's the very nature of sin. Church, sin seems small, but it has cosmic implications. Cosmic implications. And because of the rebellious nature of sin, God will not take it lightly. Right? He's going to respond to our sin. Uh, John Piper, he puts it this way. He says, he asks the question, what is sin? Sin is the glory of God, not honored. The holiness of God, not reverenced. The greatness of God, 
not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved. That is sin. Romans 3, 10 through 18 and verse 23, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is, open, is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of, venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And then down in verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So you name it, right? Pride, worry, sexual sin, all the rest. These are all evidences of the death that those who don't know Christ possess. But, but, out of God's abundant mercy and grace, he doesn't leave us there. He doesn't leave us there. Think about it. When you're sleeping at night, I don't have any kids, but I imagine this is what it's like when kids come in, it's been late, and they turn on the light, and it really, was just really dark, right? And then the light comes on, and it's, uh, it kind of blinds you for a second, or you might be a little annoyed by that. Um, I, I, I wanted to take the time to point out the darkness so that the light seems really, really bright, right? So that the light seems really, really bright. And I think here we have it in verse 11. So look at verse 11 in that very first sentence. And such were some of you. And such were some of you. My second point, you and I, we, we were the unrighteous. We were the unrighteous. As I said earlier, Paul knew the Corinthians really well. He knew the lifestyles that God had called them out of, this wasn't an ambiguous list that he just gave to them. He came up, came up with it for, he, was, he didn't come up with it for some generic sins, but instead, this was a very much a tailored list, right? A specific list for them to hear and see. He was pressing specific buttons. Therefore, he can say with conviction, and such were some of you. This wasn't a standoffish or a distant, and such were some of you. This was a very much a close up. Hey, I know you. I know where you've been. I know your first, middle, and last name. This is what, that's what you used to be, right? So Paul was very personal with the Corinthians. So when he says this, this was a personal call. When you become a believer, when you, when you to reflect that moment when you came to know Christ, would people in your life now be able to say, yeah, that's what he or she was like, but now he's like this, right? Does your life now give testimony to what the Lord has done in it? Or do you look just like the world, right? What would people say about you? Would they be able to echo the same words that Paul has said. Friends, this is it. This is it. Because of Christ's finished work on the cross, we can amen Paul in saying, yes, that's what I was too. That list, it used to identify me. It doesn't anymore. It doesn't anymore. And if it weren't for the grace of God, we would still be there. We were dead and now we're made alive. So I, I, I was dead as an 18-year-old, right down 501 at Coastal Carolina University. Um, Literally, on any day, you could have found me identifying with anything on that list um, just 10 years ago. And it wasn't until uh, the ministry that I now work for, Campus Outreach, a guy who was on staff uh, came down and gave his life to the football team to minister to us, to share the gospel with us. And it wasn't until then that I came face-to-face with my sin, that I came face-to-face with the fact that I was dead and that I needed a Savior, that I could not persist in my unrighteousness. I could not live as if I was going one place when I really wasn't. It it wasn't going to fly. And it wasn't until I was faced with the gospel 
uh, of what Christ has done for me that I actually came to know this joy. So December 30th, 2006, the Lord snatched me out of my sin. He took my sins away and he gave me this righteousness that Paul talks all about throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. I, didn't, I, could, I, I was persisting in my sin. I did not want God. I did not choose God, right? God chose me and I was dead. And dead people just simply don't choose God, right? Dead people do not choose God. And I was lost and it wasn't until this, the good news of his glorious grace came in my life that I understood that he, was, he wanted to wash me and sanctify me and justify me as we see in our verses today. You see, it was the gospel that changed me. The ageless truth that as a response to our rebellion and unrighteousness, our good and loving God sent his son into our world, to this world, to live the life that we couldn't live, right? A life that was pleasing to the Father. To die the death that we couldn't die. The the death that bore all of our sins and guilt. And he was buried and he was raised three days later, right? Signifying that this sacrifice was pleasing to God the Father. And now he sits on the throne at the right hand of God, waiting, right? Waiting, calling, bearing all of our sins and guilt, calling us to himself, wooing us to himself. And for those who would trust, put their full weight of repentance on him, those would see him. Those are the ones who would see him one day, right? When I say trust, when I, and I say have faith in Christ, I mean trust in the same way that you trust the chair that you're sitting in to hold you up. That's what I'm talking about. Trusting Christ like that. That's what he demands of us. So as an 18-year-old, I assumed that this, this whole Christian thing was something for old people, right? I'll do that when I'm, when I'm older. Yet I found that when I turned 18 is when life actually really began for me. So that brings me to our third point, point number three. Christ makes the unrighteous righteous. Christ makes the unrighteous righteous. The second half of verse 11, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Washed, sanctified, and justified. If you are in Christ, this has happened, is happening, and will happen to every single one of us. Uh, I was doing some studying, and the smart guys, they call it positional, progressive, and perfect sanctification. What I mean by that is positional in the sense that God has saved you. In that moment when he died on the cross and he rose from the grave, take it to the bank. Those who are saved have been saved. Progressive, what I mean by progressive, in the sense that we live our lives continually being transformed. I see that pretty explicitly. I think when we think of sanctification, that's probably where our minds go first. This idea of we are progressively being sanctified. We are progressively being changed. We see it uh, earlier, actually, in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 18. Paul says, And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We even see hints of that progressive nature right here in verse 11, uh, the means by which all this happens, right? The Spirit, he's doing something. He's working in us. He's currently at work in the life of every believer. And then lastly, this idea of uh, the fact that sanctification will be perfect, right? It is perfect sanctification in the sense that God will complete it. He will finish what he has begun. So if he has started it, he will finish it, right? He began it, he sustains it, and he will take it home. You know, praise God that it's not up to us, right? I, I mean, I, I make promises, New Year's resolutions, right? Oh, uh, this year I'm going to fill in the blank. I don't know, two weeks later, I'm, I can't. What was it again that I promised, right? Praise God that it's on him. He has done it. He has finished it. And now it's up, up to us to just obey, right? To follow and obey. Well, why do we know this? How do we know this? Well, because God is faithful. He's faithful to himself. 
right? Philippians 1, 6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. How could Paul say, I am sure of this? Well, because what Christ says he'll do, he does. He's the one who's faithful. Paul's not banking on his own faithfulness. He's banking on Christ's faithfulness, right? God's goodness. So therefore, he can say with full assurance, I am sure that he who began will finish. So he begins, he sustains, and he finishes. And praise God that he does. So three things I hope you can take away from our time. The three points that I was making earlier. And I think Paul makes them very, very clear. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. We were the unrighteous. And it's because of Christ's work by the Spirit that we are made righteous. So let us rejoice in these truths. Be excited by these truths. 1 Corinthians, uh, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. This is the testimony of every Christian. Right? So as you read your Bible, as you look at this chapter, this, this was you. This was us. If we are in Christ, this is what we were. Right? So reflect on it. Think about it. And I'm going to leave you with one last thing. It's a little bit lengthy, so bear with me. But I think you'll be encouraged uh, by the time I'm done reading this. Um, this is a passage from uh, one of C.S. Lewis's books, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. So if you haven't read those books, you're missing out. You need to read them. Hopefully this will encourage you to actually read them. Um, some context before I read this. There's a character named Eustace who is basically, he's basically an annoying brat, right? Everybody loves to hate him. Uh, he's selfish. He's greedy. He's always complaining. And he finds himself at this point in the book on an island where he stumbles across uh, some treasure uh, and a dead dragon that's on this treasure. And as he's kind of plotting with his greedy self how to get this treasure out of here and, and not let any of his friends know, he eventually actually falls asleep. He falls asleep on this treasure. And later he wakes up a dragon himself. Um, it's here that Aslan enters the picture, and Eustace realizes that Aslan wants him to follow him. Um, if you didn't know, if you've never read these, Aslan's a lion, right? This is fiction. This is not real. Um, uh, and they end up at a well with marble steps going down into it, and this is where my quote picks up. So bear with me on this, but it's good. Uh, the water was as clear as anything, and I thought if I could get in there and bathe, it would ease the pain in my leg. But the lion told me I must undress first. Mind you, I don't know if he said any words out loud or not. I was just going to say that I couldn't undress because I hadn't any clothes on when I suddenly thought that the dragons, the dragons are snaky sort of things and snakes cast their skin. Oh, of course, thought I. That's what the lion means. So I started scratching myself and my scales began coming off all over the place. And I scratched a little deeper. And instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully, like it does after an illness or as if I was a banana. In a minute or two, I just stepped out of it. I could see it lying there beside me, looking rather nasty. It was mostly a loving feeling, so I started to go down into the well for my bath. But just as I was going to put my feet into the water, I looked down and saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as they had been before. Oh, that's all right, said I. It only means I had another smaller suit underneath, the first one. And I'll have to get it off, too. So I scratched and tore again, and this underskin peeled off beautifully. And out I stepped and left it lying beside the other one and went down to the well for my bath. Well, exactly the same thing happened again. And I thought to myself, oh dear, however many skins have I got to take off? For I was longing to bathe my legs. So I scratched away for the third time and got off a third skin, just like the two others, and stepped out of it. But as soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. And the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty near desperate now. So I just lay flat on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. 
And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked a scab or a sore place, it hurts really bad, but it's such fun seeing it come away. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobby looking. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like it that much, for I was tender under, uh, underneath now that I had no skin. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, like any, I found all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. You think, my simply, you think me simply phony if I told you how I feel glad to see arms. I know after a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me. Well, I don't know exactly remember that bit, but he did somehow, which is what makes me think must have been a dream. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.